Father God, Lord, thank you so much for once again this opportunity that you have given to us. Uh, Father God, um, I pray that what we learned, uh, those uh, lessons that we had already and today and tonight, Father God, Lord, um, give us wisdom and understanding in how to apply in our lives. And Father God, uh, your love is, um, we can say amazing, but sometimes uh, we forgot to uh, to impart in our lives. Father God, uh, I pray that um, this moment we, uh, we can, uh, this lesson will impart in, uh, impacted in our life, Father God, and to share that love to others, Lord. Um, give us wisdom and understanding. All this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning, it's 1 John 2, 12 to 14, and it's about our spiritual assets. So at this point in John's epistle, he's given us a lot of uh, negatives or false statements that we could say about ourselves, uh, but he wants to correct. For example, if someone says that they are not sinning, he says, no, this is a lie. Or if someone says they are walking in the light, but they're doing these patterns of sin, then they're lying. Uh, so I think by this time, John might be thinking, his readers might be encouraged if they're identifying some of these sins in themselves, that they might be tempted to think that they are somehow disqualified from fellowship rather than temporarily set outside of it. So he is going to be reassuring them of their spiritual assets. Uh, so he is going to be uh, telling this group of people whom he's writing this epistle to that they shouldn't be worried about their position uh, in Christ or even their fellowship. He's writing to spiritually mature Christians, not babies, not carnal Christians. He's saying not only do you have the guarantee of salvation, but you are very spiritual people. Uh, he's only writing these things to reassure them and also so that they can train others. Uh, he is a pastor's pastor in this sense. He is preparing uh, new leaders in the church. So we remember from last week uh, that John's message is not a new one. He's preaching the same message that Jesus came to preach. So the commandments that he's giving these uh these believers uh, that he's writing this epistle to, he said, this is the same message of Christ. This is the apostolic message that is to love one another and love God. Uh, this is the light of Christ's kingdom that is reflected today in the church, but will be fully inaugurated when he comes to establish his kingdom after the period of tribulation uh, that uh, will bring in the new dispensation where Jesus Christ will be king over this earth. Uh, so Christ is that light and he is not present on this earth, but he is present in spirit with us. So we reflect it similarly to how this, the moon reflects the light of the sun. It's not the sunlight, but it's a reflection of that light. And finally, he gives another if-then statement that Christian fellowship or brotherly love is necessary walking in the light of Christ, that if we are in contentious uh, relationships with one another, with others from the body of Christ, then we are being divisive 
unnecessarily in that body of Christ. We ought to make divisions based on truth, not based on uh, our relationships and how we like this person or whether this person drank a cup of coffee at church and now we don't like them. Uh, we can't be basing our, um, our love on fickle human ideas of love. Rather, we need to be emulating Christ's love towards other people. And that's a love that this earth is unfamiliar with, except for the example of Christ and the witness of scripture. So this morning, John is going to again address little children. Uh, he, he uses two primary addresses when talking to his readers. He calls them little children or beloved. In this case, he's calling them little children. Uh, so he says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. So this term, little children, that he starts out with, um, and he gives two different, or um, he gives two bits of information to these little children. He says, your sins have been forgiven, and that those sins have been forgiven according to Jesus' name. So he is here assuring them of their salvation. Has been is a perfect tense verb. Its action has already been completed. There is no part of it left to complete. It's also passive, meaning that the little children did nothing to earn this forgiveness, did nothing to participate in the forgiveness, that it was given to them as a gift. And it's given to them according to Jesus' name, meaning that it is established on his name and his work, not the name and the work of the children. So he's saying you are little children. This term little children is technia, uh, which means little child, born one. So it specifically has to do with being born. And it's also a term of endearment, kind of like in Spanish. I don't know if you know the, the diminutive. Uh, like instead of niño, say niñito, where it's uh, a term that brings them closer in relationship to you, saying this is someone who's near and dear to my heart. Uh, so this is the term that he's chosen to use with uh, the people he's addressing. But he also addresses the same group of people as fathers. He's addressing them as fathers because they know uh, Jesus Christ. They know him who was from the beginning. They are in an intimate relationship of knowledge. Again, this is gnosko, not idu, uh, to know. This is not knowing facts. This is knowing personally, knowing by relationship. And then he addresses them again as young men because they have overcome the evil one. And again, this is a perfect tense verb. Uh, this little children, fathers, and young men probably all addresses the same group of people, that everyone he's speaking to is considering little children. Everyone he's speaking to is considering fathers, boy or girl. Uh, this is probably inclusive of his entire audience, even if it's women who are listening to it, and the young men as well. The Greek, uh, the Greek use of gender is such that... Uh, the plural here can be used for both male and female if it's masculine. But if he had said to you mothers, this could only apply to women. 
So again, similar to the Spanish, where if you say, uh, if you address a group, you use the masculine uh, noun, even if you're addressing a mixed group of men and women. But uh, he is specifically correlating this to uh, Jesus Christ and God the Father, and he's going to be asking them to be imitators. So he's asking them to imitate the Father, and so they become like fathers to those they are ministering to. So that term father is going to be necessary for the relationship that they have with God and also that they are passing on to the next generation of Christians. So in John 3, 5 through 8, uh, we see this assurance of their salvation uh, set down. Uh, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So these little children are born ones of the spirit. And that's how John is addressing them. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. In Acts 13, 38 to 39, uh, this is the established message of the apostles as well. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things, from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. So Jesus knew, uh, or Jesus' name is the foundation for the apostles' message of salvation, that through Jesus Christ alone, through faith alone, uh, do you have forgiveness of sins. And in 1 Corinthians 6.11, Paul affirms this as well. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and in the Spirit of our God. And look at these. Um, again, these are all passives, and they are in the past tense. You were washed, your washing is completed, you were sanctified, this took place in the past, and you were justified, and they're passive, meaning that the people who were washed, sanctified, justified, did not participate in the action of washing, sanctifying, and justifying, that this was all done in the name of the Lord and in the Spirit. Uh, now, this comes in Corinthians right after he's talking about those who will not inherit the kingdom of God, saying that they are drunkards, revilers, uh, immoral people. But you, uh, or but such were some of you, but you were washed. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing a set of carnal Christians who are not uh, living a very spiritual life. He's assuring them here of their position, that even though... They are not living up to the expectations of a Christian who has been washed, sanctified, and justified. This is their position in Christ. Um, so uh, John is also giving us the same message. That's our position, that even if we are stumbling, even if we are falling or even backsliding, our position is washed, sanctified, and justified. So we should walk like it. We should act like it by walking in the light. In John 1, 1 through 4, uh, 
John tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now he said, we've known the one who is from the beginning. And in this case, he's probably talking about Jesus Christ, uh, who was the Word that was with God in the beginning. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So this is the one who is from the beginning that these fathers, who are also born ones of the Spirit, have come to know. In John 14, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. Again, that's the, that's the special no for a close relationship. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Now, the Spirit's abiding in a Christian is, um, is let's see, the, the indwelling of the Spirit is something that happens to every single Christian at the time of salvation. But this abiding um, is something that happens when we abide in the vine, that as we rest in the Spirit, the Spirit is able to work through us. John here is addressing these fathers and saying, you have grown to spiritual maturity. This Spirit abides in you. He doesn't just indwell you, but he's actually taken up residence He's living in you, and um, essentially, he's using shorthand to say, we see the fruit of the Spirit being produced through you, and that the Spirit is actually living effectively in your body and in your person. And in 1 John 5, the very last chapter in this current epistle, he says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. So we see that we are born of God because we believe in Jesus Christ. We love the Father. So also, we're going to love the children of the Father. So our brothers and sisters who are also children of God, we are to love them and to serve them in the similar way as a father loves and serves his own children. So we imitate God's love to our other believers by being self-sacrificial, just like a father is self-sacrificial to his children, but also at times uh, needing to correct or to discipline. But we do this through the Spirit, that as the Spirit leads, uh, we act. And the Spirit is going to be um, speaking to those who are already prepared to do his will, whatever his will may be, not those who are going to... Uh, to question whether or not they should follow the Spirit based on what that commandment is. So he's telling us that just as fathers are prepared for anything with their children that they might have to do, that so we should be prepared in service um, in the body of Christ uh, to be servant leaders. Uh, remember, he's speaking to leaders here, but he's speaking to them as if they are to serve. Uh, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So this is now speaking to the, uh, the young men, and he's saying that this 
overcoming of the world. You have overcome the evil one. This comes through our faith. And this is based on Jesus Christ who has overcome the world. We are not particularly victorious in our own life, but rather we take on the merits of Christ who has been victorious over the world on our behalf. Here it says, we know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. This is talking again about our position, but also our experience. That when we come to know God in a personal, deep, intimate relationship, that while we are in that fellowship with God, we cannot be walking in sin as well. The light does not know the darkness. If we're walking in darkness, we're outside of him. But he who is born of God keeps him and the devil or the evil one does not touch him. So these young men who would be strong or prepared for battle, uh, they are not touched by the evil one because they are walking in the strength of Christ. Now he's going to repeat himself in a lot of ways in the second part of verse 13 and into verse 14. Um, but he's going to change a few terms and he's going to add a few terms. And this is supposed to be a reinforcement. These two or these three verses are set in here to kind of grab our attention. It's like a palate cleanser where he's going to say, um, all of this stuff that you've read already in chapter one and chapter two, we're going to take a pause here. I'm going to get your attention back. I'm going to assure you of your spiritual assets in Christ. And then we're going to continue on because when we get to verse 15, he's going to give his first command where he's going to be actively telling his readers to do one thing, which is going to be to not love the world. Uh, but he's, he's giving them assurance here and he's getting their attention by giving them this assurance. So he says, I have written to you children because you know the father. I have written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So one of the first big differences here is he's using a different tense of verb. Rather than the present, I am writing to you. He says, I have written to you. This in the Greek is called an aorist. Um, it's not really attached to time. What it's talking about is completed action. He's looking at the whole scope of this action and saying, uh, this is something that you can look at uh, like it were a movie where you can see the beginning from the end. So the whole process of writing he's looking at is completed here. Um, so he could be talking about what he's already written in this gospel or in this, um, this epistle. Everything from verse or chapter one, verse one, until uh, chapter two, verse 13. All of this was written to you children because you know the father. So in the last one, it was only the fathers who have known, but this children is also a different word. Rather than calling them paideia or um, technia, he's calling them paideia, which is uh, an older child but still very young, probably a toddler or a younger infant, but not a newborn. So he is showing some sort of a progress or progression in this child's growth that they are not only the bare minimum saved, but they've come to know their father. We've got a question here. 
Janet says, who are the two fathers words, the later father refers to whom? Uh, so you mean these, these two fathers that are right next to each other? So the children who come to know the father, uh, this father in the text is capitalized. This one's referring to God the father. This father is referring to the imitator fathers who are Christians who will act in service towards other Christians. They will uh, help to edify the saints in caring for their other brothers and sisters in Christ in a fatherly or even a motherly fashion for the women. Uh, but it's, it's in this function of parental guidance uh, for younger, uh, more immature Christians perhaps, or Christians who need temporary help uh, as they would need help from a parent. Uh, but these children here use the word paideia or paideon, uh, which is a child of probably one year old to two or three years old, a young boy or a young girl, depending on the gender of the noun. It's also a term of endearment uh, using an, a diminutive, but this word paideon um, is more than just being born. This means that this child actually will identify with his parent so that they are in some sort of a relationship. Uh, this child would look at his mother and look at his father and know who they are, uh, not just, uh, yeah, they, they would have a recognition um, of who that parent is. So this is looking at some progress. They're not just barely saved by faith alone but they actually do recognize who their father is. They know something about their father, who for us is our father in heaven. Ephesians 4, 32 to 5, 1 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So a child will imitate his parents when when a child sees his mother being kind to another person, um, he might try to imitate that same kindness. Unfortunately, in our fallen nature, it's usually the bad things that parents do that children imitate. But in God and in Jesus Christ, there is nothing bad. So when we are imitators of them in any way, as long as that way is spirit-led, uh, this is going to be imitators of good things. Uh, so we ought to be imitators of God, just as a child will imitate and learn from his parents. Uh, John 14, 6 to 7 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So they have known the Father. They had to come through Jesus Christ as little children born uh, according to his name. If you had known me, you would have known the Father, also, my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. So we come into contact with the Father. We come to know the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. Also, as imitators of Jesus Christ, then, as others come to know us, we should be reflecting God. Uh, not in the same way here as Jesus Christ, because he was God, but as we imitate him, we shouldn't be pointing to our walk and our ability because nothing we do walking in Jesus Christ is by our ability, but it's as we rest in the spirit, the spirit produces fruit through us. 
So that light should point back to God, that when we are walking in the spirit, when we're walking in the light, we are imitators, we are reflectors of God's love to the world. In 1 John 2, 3, which we read a couple weeks ago, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. We can know and we can be sure of our personal relationship with God that we have come to deeper intimate fellowship in knowing who he is um, when we are walking in obedience with him. This uh, idea of obedience again fits the relationship between parent and child. A parent uh, who has given his child uh, commandments expects that child to follow those commandments and when those commandments are followed there is a rupture in their relationship not that the father will love the child any less um, but that he has to um, train up that child and scripture also tells us that the father who spares the child the rod hates the child that a father who is unwilling to discipline is unwill or is unloving towards his child. So sometimes we are disciplined in order to bring us back into fellowship. Other times, and perhaps even uh, worse, is as we quench the spirit, uh, which is to say no to his leading, the spirit will grow quiet so that it will no longer speak to us in the same way that it does while we are in fellowship with him that when we are turning a deaf ear to the spirit, the spirit will not be as interactive with us. Uh, this is quenching the spirit. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12 tells us, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So John also again refers to his readers as young men. This idea of young men um, shows strength or preparedness for battle. Uh, it's the word man neoniskos in Greek. Uh, and he gives them, instead of just one uh, attribute, he says also in this case that they are strong. Well, they have grown strong in the Lord. They've grown strong through knowing Jesus Christ by his revealed word and also by abiding in the spirit. Uh, but they are not strong with their own strength. They're strong with the strength of Christ. They have put on this full armor. Uh, they are able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. It says you have overcome the evil one. Uh, but also, what was it? That, they, uh, that the word of God abides in you. This is very important for our strength and for our assurance of overcoming the evil one. That when the word of God is abiding in us, uh, we have that guarantee and that strength. In John 5, 37 to 38, Jesus says, And the Father who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him who, who he sent. 
So this is kind of tying it all together, but in a negative sense, talking to those who have not believed, saying that believing in his name is necessary for his word abiding in you, that his word abiding in you is going to have life-changing effects, not only initially in bringing you to faith in who he is, but as it abides in you, your knowledge of Christ will grow. So in 1 John 1, 1 through 3, this is how John introduced us to his, to his epistle. Um, he says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Remember, the word of life here is not Jesus Christ, but the word of God, the actual written uh, message, which was passed down through the apostles. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John here in chapter 2 is confirming to these Christians that they are also in this knowledge of God and of Christ, that they have this intimate fellowship. He's essentially telling them, I am not writing this letter to you because you are failing in these areas, but because you need continual strengthening in these areas, that you need to know your position in Christ, that you need to know your position in God, because as you come to know it deeper, your love and your fellowship with God will grow deeper. That when we are not sure of our salvation, when we are not sure of where we stand with Jesus and with God, uh, we flail. We, we start to uh, wither as Christians. We ought to be primarily absolutely sure of what he has done on our behalf and then be absolutely sure of our growth in him, that as we are abiding in him, using all of these tests of fellowship that John's already given us, rather than being terrified or worried that we haven't done enough, we should be assured because these are things that are done by God and by Christ using the Holy Spirit in our lives, working through us. In 1 John 1, 9 through 10, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Well, his word is in us because we affirm together with the spirit that, yes, we are sinners, but we are absolutely cleansed. We are absolutely washed and justified uh, on Christ's account, not on our own account. So as we confess our sins to God, we are only agreeing with him about um, our sins. We are admitting to him facts that he already knows, but these are for our benefit that we confess to him uh, our sins, that we might be brought back into fellowship with him because the ruptured fellowship is not on his side of the relationship. It's on ours. When we sin against him, we have broken our fellowship with him. When we confess our sins to him, we admit that we have done something wrong, but we're not saying that by my confession, the power of that confession has brought me back into faithfulness. No, we're saying, I recognize that I broke this fellowship and Jesus Christ is faithful to bring us back into that fellowship. It's him who brings us back into fellowship with the father. Uh, 
And it's, it says here that if we are faithful and confess our sins, we can only confess the sins that the Spirit has convicted us of in the light, that when we come to know what those sins are, when we're impressed with the sinfulness of our sins and how they are an offense to God, then we confess them to him. But we can only confess those sins that we know. There are sins that we are unaware of, even sins of omission, things that we should be doing that we're not, but we're not aware of them. Even these sins, it says, will be cleansed because he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we are faithful and reactant to the spirit when it's convicting us, that we are, uh, we are putting a wedge between our fellowship with God. If we stop and we start to pray to God in the spirit and say, look, I recognize that this, this thing that I'm doing is a sin. Help me, give me strength. Um, but bring me back into fellowship with you because only as we're walking in fellowship and the word is abiding in us, that is when we have the strength to overcome these sins that when God is filling our hearts and not the sinful lusts of the world, that is when our fellowship with him is growing and deepening and being, in, uh, being strengthened. All right, so in 1 John 2, 12 through 14, what is the overall message here? First, we've got a question. Janet says, what if a person did not confess the sin and the following day that person came to God and prayed for healing? Is that person still have the right to fellowship with God? Uh, yes. Um, we're not supposed to let the sun go down on our wrath. Uh, but uh, here, these, these, this confession of sin is given the idea of immediately not even waiting for the sun to go down or the, the day or the night doesn't really do much um, here because even waiting an hour when the spirit has, um, has convicted of, us of a sin, if we put off that confession, if we don't just even send up a little lightning prayer to God saying, oh man, help me here. Uh, I'm, I'm breaking fellowship and I, I want to maintain fellowship with you. This fellowship should be a day-by-day -day walk. Nevertheless, at any point uh, after we've broken that fellowship, we can come back, even 10 years if we've been out of the fellowship with God. Now, it's going to get harder and harder to come back into fellowship the longer you've been out of fellowship with him. But uh, there is no time limit on this confession of sin. We can bring this confession to God at any point to repair our fellowship with him. Um, but if we refuse to admit these sins, if we're saying, no, that's not a sin, that's, that's nothing. Well, if, if he is convicting you of that, there is something there that's a problem. Um, if he is putting it on your heart, uh, for example, the, uh, let's just say someone, uh, someone is, is robbed by their boss. They have to work for some free time that they think they should be paid for. So, they don't want to go tell their boss, I think you should pay me for this. They take the money out of the cash register. They say, well, he owes me this. Well, your heart is going to be convicting you of that sin. It's going to be telling you, you shouldn't have taken that money. What if he finds out? What if that employer finds out that you took that money? Well, now with your public confession as a Christian, he's going to look at you and say, that Christian took money. He's not going to say, uh, that employee of mine. But this is going to reflect back on God. But God has doubtless 
been convicting your heart of that sin. And if you say, no, that's not a sin because he owed me that. Well, you're calling God a liar. Um, and that's, that's what we were looking at um, in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 1. That if we are faithful and confess our sins, well, that confession of sin is firstly to God. Because that offense, when you took that money out of that cash register, that wasn't a sin against your boss. That was a sin against God. Uh, you put his witness at stake here in his children. Uh, but that, that um, disobedience, that going against uh, the rules that have been set down, that's an offense against God primarily. But the confession of sin should also go as wide as that sin has affected people. So if you have sinned against another, uh, another person, you should also repair your relationship with that person in a similar manner. Uh, with that boss, it could be however the Spirit guides you. It could be just replacing that money, but it could be going to your boss and admitting what you've done. That could put your job in jeopardy, but it would repair the integrity of the walk of your Christian, um, of your Christian faith here on earth that uh, you shouldn't have sinned, and sometimes there are consequences for sinning, um, for sinning against another person, but primarily for sinning against God. But what's necessary to repair is those relationships. Um, so here in, in 1 John, here's a summary of these assets that he's telling us. He says, as newborns, we are born again through faith in Jesus Christ, um, by whose name we've obtained eternal life. So we're born in Jesus Christ. He does that, uh, all the work for that new birth. It's based on his work and not our own. But as children, we've come to know um, the Father just as children as they grow they come to know their parents. I mean, think of a young child who just does not want to be separated from his parent. That parent is all he knows, and he is intimately attached to him. As fathers, we are imitators of Christ and God in our ministry toward us, um, who are conduits of God's fatherly love to our brothers and sisters. So just as Christ the Father loved us, we are to imitate his fatherly love towards others. So this is one reason why we believe why we believe that John is speaking to mature Christians who are possibly even in leadership positions here in the church. And uh, John, was, um, John was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Um, it's possible that he is writing a pastoral epistle to other church leaders, preparing them for service. These church leaders being prepared for service are not going to be immature Christians, but mature Christians. So he's writing to edify mature Christians who are in a spiritual fatherly um, position here. As young men, you are given strength to be valiant against the enemy because Jesus has already conquered the evil ones, and he abides in us through the word and in the spirit. Uh, so we have strength, just as a young man prepared for battle, to fight this spiritual warfare in which we find ourselves in our present day. Uh, that this is still the world of the enemy. This world belongs to the devil and the whole world rests in his power. But we are born of God. We have overcome the evil one because Christ has overcome the evil one. All right. So there is our passage today, 1 John 2, 12 through 14. So are there any questions or comments or prayer requests?
Jenna, I think you're muted. You're muted. There you are. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, um, I I don't want to mention a name, but this I have a, a friend. Uh, I, I, we know that God knows each every one of us, and God knows what I'm, to whom I'm referring to. So pray for uh, wisdom and understanding in uh, on her uh, situation, and that uh, can move on. I know Lisa is the name is Movon, but I mean, I mean, you know, this person <laughs> that she can you know, move, on. move on. That God, yeah, God have you know, uh, uh, His mercy and grace be upon her. Right. Yeah, and for me also, I would like to ask prayer for my daughter. <laughs> she uh, today is her birthday, and she's twenty years old. But uh, since uh, February, we don't have a, a communication because we have a misunderstanding. <laughs> so oh. for me, it's the pride. That's why we are still we still not communicating with each other. And she wants to live alone. So she's living separately from our family house. So, so as a mother, I'm still worried about her life. She's working by herself. And it's, it's a mother is a painful when your daughter is really, you know, it's not communicating with you. And I know that her pride also really high, just like me. So, yeah. So I pray for her that God will give her wisdom, that God will humble her heart. And me too, that God will humble, humble my heart. Absolutely. Yes, we'll pray for that. All right. Well, if that's uh, if that's it, let's pray. Um, additional additional prayer for Charlie. Uh, that her uh, his uh, paper, you know, that is already done. Hopefully today or tonight or this morning, yeah. your morning. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Good. Yes, we'll pray for Charlie. Good luck. Yeah. All right. So let's pray. Uh, dear Lord. Uh, we pray for Janet's friend. Uh, we ask that you give her the strength to move on. Uh, we ask that you be a guiding light in her life, that uh, she is able to look to you for strength and look to you for guidance, uh, that, uh, that in her life you are uh, living and working and abiding in her. We ask these Lord, so that, uh, so that she might be a witness to you on this earth. Lord, we, we pray also for Lisa and her daughter. Uh, we pray that they are able to repair and restore their relationship so that they can be in a more intimate, intimate fellowship with one another. Lord, whenever we have ruptures in our, in our fellowship with one another, we can be reminded of the fragileness of relationships. And we want to take special care with those we love to stay in fellowship with them. And Lord, we also want to stay in fellowship with you. Uh, so guide us and teach us uh, as we come to know you uh, deeper and more intimately that you can change our hearts and give us a heart of love that uh, is the kind of love that only comes through the Spirit. Lord, we pray that we can be self-sacrificially um, loving towards others um, and that the pride of this life fades away from our hearts. 
Lord, we pray also for Charlie as he finishes up his paper. We pray that you give him strength and you give him perseverance uh, to push to the end, glorifying you uh, with the words that he's writing. Lord, we pray all these things in your wonderful and glorious name. Amen. Amen. Amen.